All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, thank you for listening to the latest and hopefully the greatest episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey. I am your host, per usual. Uh, before we get going, let me do the usual spiel. Please engage with the product in some capacity. Like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, whatever's relevant on your podcast platform of choice. If you've done any and all of that, uh, share us around. Uh, let people know you like the show. Tell your friends that uh, that you think might enjoy it, the show. Yeah, point me in my point them in my direction. Give me a chance to entertain or annoy them, depending on what you want. If you think this show will annoy them, but they'll listen to it and you can just kind of passively enjoy their aggravation, I will take that. It's not a big enough not a big enough show for me to be too proud to take those kinds of lessons. So thank you. <laughs> Any shares that you can do, always appreciated. On the agenda, well, we got stuff, don't we, people? First up, last night, UFC on ESPN Plus 75. That was a show. Uh, Main event swapped out during fight week, so we'll talk about all that. We have a preview this coming uh, Saturday, UFC 283. The UFC is in uh, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil at the moment. I say at the moment because they have swapped up... uh, Venues in the past, so that's where we're currently planned, and at this point, it seems pretty solid. Um, barring some shenan- some real-world shenanigans. Uh, so we'll have a preview of that card. And then news, and boy, do we have news. Um, yeah, we got news. We got fight announcements, we got some roster shakeups. Um, yeah, we got stuff. We got stuff. So, with all that out of the way, let's jump right in, shall we? So, UFC on ESPN Plus 75. The main event was supposed to be Nasruddin Imavov taking on Kelvin Gastelum. I picked Imavov. Um, then, during fight week, Kelvin Gastelum had to pull out with a mouth injury. Um, and apparently a staph infection on his face... And that's certainly what it looked like in the picture. He, people were giving him grief, so he posted a photo of himself with his mouth open, like, hey, no, look what happened to my face. Uh, and he's missing a tooth, and there's a so clearly legitimate injury. I'm not, not saying anything, not claiming it otherwise. But in that same picture, you can see a visible, like, open staph infection wound on his face. I don't, I don't know what to, I don't know what to do here with this because, if you'll all recall, he tried to fight uh, Gastelum. He tried to fight Robert Whitaker with a visible like staff issue on his neck. Uh, it shouldn't be this hard to clean the mats, right? Keep the mats clean, and then the first thing you do when you get back from training is you shower thoroughly. Right? This is what you do. You do this every time. You you go to a place that has clean mats. And maybe sometimes that means it's your turn to clean them. But, you know, you 
you clean the mats, and you clean yourself, and you won't get staff. Not... Not that difficult. Right? I understand that the close proximity training that you do in MMA training or jujitsu and wrestling and whatnot, it... It certainly leads to that being a bigger... Leads to a greater... An increased risk of staff infection. Put it like that. But... There's plenty of guys who have, you know, never had a meaningful, never really had a staph infection. And they will mess you up, man, if they get out of control. So, I don't know what's up with that. Anyway, he had to pull out. In steps, Sean Strickland. This puts Sean Strickland actually in potentially a unique position. I'm going to have to double check this. But I'm 99% sure this is true for the last, like, 10 years, if not more. He's the He might be the first person to main event back-to-back pay-per-views. Uh, not pay-per-views, sorry. He might be the first person to main event back-to-back events, certainly in the modern era of the UFC. And I'm another thing I'm fairly positive about, he's the first person to main event the last show of one year and then main event the first show of the next. So, if you care about random trivia like that, Sean Strickland might answer a few trivia questions in the future. Just saying. Uh, again, I picked him off of in the Gastelum fight. I would not have... I'm not just saying this because, for the record, Sean Strickland wins the fight via unanimous decision. I'm not just saying I would have picked Strickland because he won. I think Strickland is a much worse matchup for uh, Imavov at this point in his career than Gastelum. For a variety of reasons. Um, the fight itself, this was more entertaining than the Strickland Cannoneer fight, which was one of the worst fights of 2022. I didn't mention it last week, um, but it was up there. I mean, I didn't do the worst fights of the. I forgot that I normally do a worst fight of the year thing. For the record, worst fight of the year for 2022. Um, Rosnami Yunus Carlos Barza. Like, that fight sucked. Um, but Strickland and Cannoneer was, would have been in the top five, I think. Again, I, because I lost all of my stuff, I lost my lists and everything that I've been keeping. So we're on track for this year, though. Um, we are... We're on note-taking appropriately for 2023, and we should be on track for the end of the year in that respect. So, knock on wood. Uh, Anyway, point being, more entertaining than that. um, Both guys with a little bit of leg kicking. The problem, Imavov just could never get Strickland out of Strickland's game, right? Strickland's like, okay, I'm going to... A lot of people have mentioned this about Strickland. And I'm going to echo it. He he is comfortable fighting at this really, like, really weird distance. Most MMA fights uh, spend the majority of their time either at extended... When I say extended kickboxing range, I mean... Saying just kickboxing range is a little misleading. I Like, you, you say it for conversant purposes... Like there's, you know, there's clinching range, and then there's boxing range, and then there's kickboxing range, and okay. I, I'm not saying that's wrong, I'm saying that 
each of those actually subdivides more than a little bit. Are you chest to chest in the clinch? Are you using a you know the Muay Thai kind of plum? Well, plum just means clinch, but are you using you know, a little bit of space in the clinch, or are we like full on chest to chest Greco style? When we get into boxing range, are we pocket boxing? Are we you know, you know it's, that's real tight like infighting boxing? Are we a little bit further, just still in the pocket but not quite against each other? Are we at extend you know, kind of the end of punching range? Getting into the kickboxing range, are we, you know, Muay Thai or Dutch-style kickboxing range? Because that's not the same as what a lot of MMA fights take place at, which is a little bit further apart than that, even. And, again, like, I hate to say that, like, MMA fighters are afraid of contact or anything. This is just strategy. But there's there's differences in the ranges beyond just, the, like, the three base delineations. Most MMA fights, and now this is true, most, most MMA fights are fought at kind of the the end of kickboxing range, right? Like if you, so if the Dutch style, or a lot of Muay Thai, not all of it, but a lot of traditional Muay Thai, or Dutch style Muay Thai kickboxing, is pretty close. Like that's almost, that and like the long range of boxing, the long punching range of boxing, those are almost the same thing. They just know how to throw kicks at that same distance, which is a little bit of an art in and of it to itself. So keep that in mind. But like, there's that range, which allows for constant activity. You take another like half step back. That's where most MMA fights take place, and there's a variety of reasons for it. And it's not—I mean, it's not worth like dissecting here, but. That's the range most MMA fights take place at if you watch them. Like, watch the spacing between fighters. Where does most of it happen? Like, where's the majority of the fight take place? It's that. It's like, it's not quite the extreme end of potential kickboxing, where it's not like, um, if you watch pure point-fighting karate, and I mean point-fight karate, not, um, you know, Kyokushin, or, um, Kyokushin or Shotokan? Sorry, I forget the difference. One of them is that... Kyokushin, I believe, is actually the style, and then Shotokan is the style of fighting. Or I have that backwards. Hang on, I'm going to look this up because I want to make sure I'm correct about this. Okay, they're both technically styles, but um, Shotokan is... Shotokan's like one of the original, I think, five styles of karate. Um, which, if you again, if you want to get real... Which is a... Again, that's a fun thing to get into if you're... A martial arts nerd, and I'm kind of a martial arts nerd, so. But um, Shotokan is, I, I think, kind of what. Um, I have that backwards. Hang on. I the long sorry the long and the short of that is I believe the Kyokushin style is kind of what that if you've you've seen some of these you've probably seen some of these fights. The part of the philosophy of that training was. We want to train hard, like almost full contact, but in order to facilitate a degree of safety, there will be no strikes to the face or the head at all. So if you watch uh, Kyokushin tournaments, they're full contact and they're gnarly and they produce very, very tough fighters and very good, like some very good kickboxers come out of that. You can kick to the head, but you can't punch to the head. But again, this was a training thing. Like we all want to train. We all want to be able to train consistently. 
if we don't punch each other, if we don't punch each other in the head, you know, we can learn to block kicks. But if we're not like jabbing and cutting each other up consistently, we can train hard more often. The theory, not a bad theory. Again, there's pros and cons to it. We're not here to get into all of that. But um, the, they fight very close, first of all, and. They do just a lot of, like, very high volume. They do a lot of punches to the chest, and it's different than point karate. The Kyokushin rules usually base on, like, uh, they, they have a scoring system and criteria, but they also, like, will score knockouts and knockdowns, whereas a lot of the, like, um, the WKF scoring criteria, which is what they used at the Olympics, does not actually allow you to go for the knockout, which is weird, and I don't agree with it. I mean, even Taekwondo fights, official, like, Olympic-style Taekwondo, you can win by knockout. They don't usually, but it's theoretically allowed. Anywho. Um, point karate fights at a very long distance. MMA fights very rarely are at that distance. You move, like, one degree closer. But you're not the next step closer than that, which is... Um, again, that's kind of like... The very, if you watch, like, uh, again, a lot of Muay Thai or, um, I hate to say Dutch style, because that's just a style of kickboxing. But they tend to do a little bit, like, just a, kind of that extreme end of, we're just outside of punching range, but we're still kind of in kicking range the whole time. Most MMA fights are a little bit removed from that. Most, they don't spend, you, MMA fighters do not spend a lot of time just at the distance where they can hit each other. They have to move. Now, this is a broad generalization. Obviously, there are fights that are different than that and whatnot, but go with me here, because I'm making a point about Strickland. Strickland is exceptionally good at constantly being at, like, long boxing range, right? Which means he can, like, you're always kind of in range to be hit by something. Either just a slight shift forward, you don't even necessarily need to step all that much, and you, your punches can land... Or you're just always in range for kicks. People just don't like kicking when they're close. Again, for reasons. Some valid, some weird. And he makes people fight at this distance that they don't spend a lot of time at. And it makes very good fighters, in some cases, very uncomfortable. So he's very good at that. Um, he was more aggressive, as I said here, than he was in the Cannoneer fight. More activity. Uh... Imavov just couldn't get his rhythm, couldn't get Strickland to back off. Which I'm not saying is an easy thing to do, by the way, but he couldn't do it. Um, Imavov's best round was the fifth, when Strickland was kind of in, and I don't mean this unkindly, like he was in, okay, let's not lose this in the fifth round mode, and Imavov was in kind of screw it. Um... And that that combination of factors resulted in Imavov having his best round. You could have maybe given him the first. The first was a competitive round. But 2, 3, and 4, pretty clearly Strickland. It's the second. I forget which one. I gave Imavov one of them, and I can't remember which one. I might have thought he edged out the second. I forget. Forgive me, I'm doing it live. Um... Point being, the first two rounds were pretty were relatively competitive. Um, I think it gave Strickland the first and Imavov the second. I'm gonna have to look up what I did exactly. I'm sorry, I forgot. Yeah, 
doing it live, I gave him off. I gave him off of the second. Going off of memory, I think that's defensible. Um, yeah, round one was a lot. It was again, it was a competitive round, but I was a little bit more confident in Strickland winning that one than the second. Um, three and four, pretty easily Strickland rounds. And then again, five, I thought Imavov took, but just you know, too little, too late. Um, unfortunate for Imavov, who had a pretty good streak going, and like I said, I thought he would have beat Kelvin Gastelum. Um, I still think that, for the record. But he wound up fighting um, a much tougher opponent than he was originally scheduled on very short notice. Um, unfortunate, and it's kind of the only word for it. As far as adjustments go, here's the big thing about this. I think Yamava, this should tell you how hard it is to make adjustments in real time, which is more to say that the fighters who can do this kind of stuff, like mid-round or between rounds, um, guys like you know, Demetrius Johnson is exceptional at this. Max Holloway is very good at this. Volkanovski, obviously, is very, very good. Like The guys who are very, very good at going, oh, this isn't working. But this will be open. Let me change tactic. And then finding success there, uh, that's hard. By the time Imavov figured out, oh, I can elbow this guy. Or, you know, I figured out ways to throw better knee strikes on a more regular basis, which were good weapons when he chose to use them, by the way. He just didn't start using them until much too late into the, into the fight. So... It was what it was. It's not great. Uh, but it's not the worst fight in the world. So I'll take it considering how it came together and everything. Uh, co-main event. This was good. Dan Ige knocks out Damon Jackson. 413 of the second round. Really nice finish from Ige. Um, Ige looked good here. Ige looked... Um, he's always been a little bit on the shorter side for featherweight. But he looked... For this fight in particular... He looked more muscular, like he'd really kind of filled out through the back and shoulders. So I think he's been dedicating some time to the weight room to increase his physical strength a little bit. Uh, he he looked good here, you know, stuffing takedowns, engaging in the fight kind of the way he normally does, not letting Jackson do what Jackson wanted to do, uh, and a really nice left hook finish. Uh, Ige kind of baited at Jackson, counter slipped back just a little bit, right to the body, more like as a range finder and kind of a momentum stopper than Jackson because he and he dips and loads on his left hand on his left side. Normally this opens you up for uh, this would be a right side uppercut from the opponent, which Jackson had been showing. Ige knows it's coming and before that punch really develops from Jackson, he crushes him with a left hook. Uh, nice finish from Ige. He needed that. He needed to kind of remind people that he's still a very, very good featherweight. We might have seen his ceiling. I'm not sure about this, but bear in mind, he was on a rough stretch. But the losses he incurred were to, you know, Josh Amrett, Calvin Cater. Um, who's the other guy? Like, okay, so his his last four losses were Calvin Cater... Um, Chan Sung Jung, which, not a great, that was kind of rough. 
But that was, you know, Jung during his last kind of run at the belt. And he, it's not that Ige fought badly in that fight. He was just outpowered, mostly. Um, I think he outlanded the Korean zombie. And then just when Jung would hit him, he would hurt him and then get on top. And he, Jung won the fight. Like, I'm not arguing that at all, for the record. <laughs> then Josh Emmett kind of out-wrestled him. And that's pretty much what Movsar of Loyev did, too. But, you know, Cater went on to fight. Not for the belt, but you know, he's been fighting around the title. Jung went on to fight for the belt. Josh Emmett's about to fight for the interim belt. Evloyev is... He's a guy I think extremely highly of. You know, he's undefeated, 16-0. and 0. Um, He was supposed to fight Bryce Mitchell, if you'll recall, in um, uh, November. Unfortunately, he had to pull out of that. And Ilya Teporia stepped in. Um... I would have picked Evloyev to beat Mitchell. Um, not because I think Bryce Mitchell sucks. I don't. But I think very highly of Evloyev. So he's been fighting very, very good guys. And I think kind of the thing about Ige at the moment, you can you can see that he is better than a certain level of featherweights, right? He knocked out Jackson here. Jackson was on a pretty good run. He knocked out Gavin Tucker back in uh, 2021. Has that win over Edson Barboza, which is nothing to sneeze at. Even though, you know, again, should he have won that? Eh, it was dicey. It was a split decision. Dicey. I mean, that is like the fight. I don't mean that as kind of a joke. I mean, that was a tough back-and-forth fight that a lot of people thought Barboza won. Um, live, I scored it. I said this before. Live, I scored it for Ige. On rewatch, I kind of think I would have scored it for Barboza, but eh, what are you going to do? Right, so he's he's better than a lot of featherweights. The problem is, I don't know that he's good enough to beat the guys in like the top six or seven, right? Like that's still kind of an open question for Ige, but. This was a much-needed win for him, so and a good one, and a very good one. So kudos to Dan Ige. Middleweight, this was brutal. Roman Kopilov defeated Punahele Soriano via body kick and punches, uh, 319 of the second. Um, Soriano came out and was swinging for the fences and unfortunately became a little bit predictable. Both guys southpaw, which is kind of important here in a for reason I'll get to in a second. They're both Southpaw, and Soriano, not just Soriano, most Southpaws, stressing most, don't have very good jabs. For a very specific reason, and it's not even a bad reason, when you're fighting open stance, the jab is not the most important weapon because of the the distance involved, the foot position, and the angles, like, this is known, right? Like, I'm not, I sh this should not be a revelation to anyone when I say this. Most southpaws don't have a good jab because they spend most of their time fighting open stance. And in that circumstance, you're generally a little bit better off developing a kind of counter hook over the opponent's jab and your power left. Because throwing the power hand 
as kind of the lead blow is a lot more common in the open stance because of what's closed off and what's available due to the body position. Which is to say that when southpaws fight southpaws, if one of you happens to have a very good jab, you'll do a lot of good work with it because the other guy's probably not used to dealing with it. Such was the case here. Soriano did not have a good answer for the jab, and it was it was messing him up. And his answer to it, such as it existed, was to raise his guard up high, you know, try to eat it on the arms and elbows, and keep coming forward to throw the overhand left. Well, the real problem there for him was that opens up your body. And Kopilov had some decent success going to the body in the first. In the second round, pretty early actually, he lands a gnarly spinning back kick to the body. I'm not, I will not be surprised if I wind up hearing that uh, Soriano has some kind of rib injury. Like, it was a nasty, nasty back kick. Now, Soriano didn't drop. Like, the men's ridiculously tough. But that one kick changed the fight. Like, Kopilov was winning anyway, but everything kind of turned after that kick. Um, Kopilov started landing uh, not just punches to the body, though he did land some really good ones of those. He started landing body kicks. And one of the things about, um, f- about fighting southpaw, because your right side is forward, your liver is on your right side. Right? Uh, and if your opponent has a dexterous lead leg, they can do some... Uh, sorry, not not lead leg. Forgive me. You've got to be mindful of you know, your body positioning there, because if they've got a good um, body kick, if we're both orthodox and you're firing the the rear leg kind of into the back of my left side, it's not really the end of the world. It's that there's nothing over there that you like getting hit necessarily, but you don't have an organ kind of hanging right there under your rib cage that's going to cause you a lot of discomfort if it's hit. Getting hit on the other side of your body, on your left side, uh, it's it's still not pleasant. Be very clear about that. I'm not saying it's a great experience, but ask anyone who's been hit there. You want to take a shot on the left side of your body or the right side, people are going to say, I'll take one on the left side. It tends to be less damaging. So if you're out there just kind of hanging your, you know, the right side of your body forward, and the other guy, especially if they've got a good power lead, power leg kick, they can do some damage. And Kopilov was. He was he landed some good body kicks, nearly folded uh, Soriano a couple of times, finally landed a really bad one, pushed him against the fence, unloaded with punches. Ref stepped in, good stoppage. Um yeah, really good performance out of Kopilov. People use this fight as an example of what makes body work work. Uh, too many, I'm going to echo something that Jack Slack said recently. Too many people expect that, you know, I'm going to hit them to the body once and they're going to fold, and that's not usually how that works. Body work is an investment. It takes time to mature and it takes consistent uh, dedication to it. 
you keep going and it will start breaking down and you'll start getting better better reactions and even if you don't even if you never get the guy to fold over body work will s deter your opponent this is this is one of the big things like if you want to know if someone was hurt by a body shot don't look for them to double over right look for what their two things look for what their elbows do cuz usually the elbows even if the hands don't drop if the elbows come in tighter and lower a little bit and if the shoulders unshrug, that's a pretty big tell. And look at if they keep doing what they're doing. Or if they stop. Like, the behavior around it is a much better indicator than anything, like, immediately related to it. Right? Um, I think it was Jack Dempsey who mentioned at one point, like, uh, for one of his fights with Gene Tunney, he might have been the second one, uh, he came out and was looking to get right after the fight because Jack Dempsey was an aggressive fighter. And the first thing Tunney did was lower his level a little bit and just sink a right hand into his body. And it didn't stop Dempsey. Uh, but it did kind of, uh, I think he mentioned in, in one of his books, like I, I never quite got right again. Like he still fought very ably and very admirably in that fight. If you've never seen the Dempsey Tunney fights, uh, they're worth your time. But he never, he's never quite got all the way back to you know, what he was at the, before that one punch landed. So it's an investment. Let it mature. Uh, good stuff from Kopulov here. Um, Raquel Pennington defeated Ketlin Vieira via split decision, 29-28. Round one to Vieira, round two to Pennington. Round three was close enough to go either way. Is what it is. Um, not a great fight. Don't have a whole lot to say about it. If you want to throw Pennington back there to get massacred by Amanda Nunes again, I say go for it. Um, but I just don't have a lot on that one. Sorry. Uh, what I do have a fair bit to say about, though, is um, Umar Nurmagomedov knocks out Hani Barcelos in the first round. 440 of round one. Out cold. Uh, I don't know if you were aware of this before this fight or not, guys, but Umar Namagamedov is probably going to be bantamweight champion. And I'm aware of how good that division is. I don't say that lightly. But good grief. This guy is dynamic. He's dexterous. His kicking game is very good. It attacks all three levels. He's got a bunch of kicks that look the same. And I mean that as a compliment. Like, if you can't tell what kick he's going to throw before it starts it starts its trajectory, uh, that's a good thing. Like, that means you're in trouble because you're having to guess. Is that kick, you know, is it, is it a... Is it a front kick to the body? Is it a front kick to the face? Is it a... Is it more of a side kick? Is it a step-through side kick? Is it a step-through roundhouse? Uh, is that roundhouse going low, middle, middle, or high? I wish my kicks looked the same, right? Because mine don't. Like my my roundhouse looks very different in terms of like setup and execution from the one that I can. Like my question mark kick is okay. And my, my front kick and my question mark kick actually don't really change until they're supposed to change. 
But like, if I'm throwing my lead leg, like, yeah, you can tell the difference between my lead leg roundhouse and my lead leg sidekick before it really chambers even. I've got some hip issues. Um, you don't have that with Nurmagomedov here. They're fast, and you're kind of just guessing about what he's throwing and where it's going. Because, you know, good luck. Like, when they're that fast and they're that smooth, that's a problem. He can wrestle. He can control. He can grapple, obviously, because uh, he's done that a lot in the past. He's got power. Like, here's the craziest thing about this guy. I was listening. I, I watched this in real time. Um, Luke Thomas did his live reaction to this card. Uh, I think for Morning Combat, uh, the podcast series that he does. And he looked up Umar Nurmagomedov's stat line like in real time there, and I got to watch this, and it's ridiculous. Um, he lands... First of all, his striking accuracy is like almost 70%. Like 60-70, which is very high. Um, most guys... I think 40-50 to 50 is kind of more the average, striking-wise, which... I mean, you get a guy who's hitting you every other time he throws. Like, that's really good. You get a guy who is statistically hitting you more often than not. That's a real good, like, that's a really impressive thing. Like, But the big thing was, like, the his strikes landed per minute. So not just accuracy, but landed per minute was, like, four point something, which is a lot. Like, that's a, that's a good, that's a very high number. I think, I want to say the average is just under three for strikes landed per minute. But his strikes absorbed per minute is like, uh, might even be lower than Islam Makashev's. It's less than one. It's like 0.3. And I can, I can actually look this up. Hang on, I, I want to be sure I'm right about this. Okay, yeah, okay, here it is. Hang on. So, strikes landed per minute is 4.85. Again, that's a good number. If you're landing four, if you're landing almost five strikes per minute, it's a good clip. His strikes absorb, his striking accuracy for the record at the moment is dead at 70%. Very high. His strikes absorb per minute is 0.73. Guys, you're not even hitting him statistically. You're not even hitting him once every four times he hits you. Right? <laughs> that's... That's ridiculous. He's never been taken down. Um, his takedown accuracy... Uh, because he uses the... He uses the same kind of style that, you know, a lot of the Dagestani guys do, so they, their takedown accuracy is never that great. But it's not about get, it's not about each individual takedown resulting in a successful takedown. It's more about, like, hey, can I close distance? Can I get a hold of you? Can I start working? Um, does he seriously average... Hang on. Yeah, his okay. His average takedowns landed per 15 minutes is 4.2. Like, that's a lot of takedowns. 
That's hard to do. There's not too many guys who have that, like, you know, takedowns landed per 15 minutes. That's a lot. And it clearly doesn't phase him. Like, the guy can, the guy's got cardio for days. Uh, man, I, I still can't kind of get over that, that you're hitting him less than once a minute. And he's hitting you almost five times a minute. You, I'm not saying he's unbeatable, okay? He's he's unbeaten thus far. He's 16 and 0. Um, he's due a. Like, there's a reason nobody's f signing to fight this guy, right? Like the top of that division knows what a, what this guy is. Uh, you know, geez, would I? Who would I? Would I favor him over? Let me think about this for a minute. Okay, so we've got Sterling at the top. Probably going to fight Cejudo next. There's a timetable issue there, but probably they're probably doing that, so whatever. You've got Marlon Vera and Corey Sandhagen are going to fight soon. I would love to see him fight the loser of that. Because uh, the winner of that's probably do a title shot. But the loser of that fight against uh, Umar, that would be my hunch. Like, that's kind of what I would like to see. Because Vera and Sandhagen are main eventing a card in... It's in February or early March. I forget which one, but... Uh, the timetable could line up. Is all I'm saying there. Uh, I think they still have Dominic Cruz ranked in the top ten. And my respect for Dominic Cruz's career and whatnot is well documented. I think Umar would handle him. Uh... Yeah, I'd, I'd pick him over Marab. Like, Marab's kind of the guy that a lot of people are going, well, he's hard to beat. I'm not saying he's easy to beat. But I think Umar would beat Marab. Like, this guy's... Assuming there's nothing crazy in terms of injuries or, you know, outside the cage stuff, there's a real good chance Umar Namagamedov fights for the bantamweight title or some variation of the bantamweight title this year. Like, he's that good? Or, if not this year, within 13 months. Like, early 2024 would probably be at the latest. Like, he's he's that good. Jeez. Uh, that stat line is... You know, for... I was very... I mean, for a while, like, um, Makashev's... Strikes absorbed per minute. His differential was big, but more because he just didn't get hit. Uh, I think you know, Umar's more active than Makachev offensively. That's not a knockout. Like I'm just kind of because the the last guy who I saw with a defensive number like that was Islam Makachev, and Makachev's offensive activity is not that high. It, not this high. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm, I'm not trying to knock Makashev here. I'm making a comparison because, like, in praise of Umar Nurmagomedov here, like, he's more active offensively and gets hit less. Like, dang. <laughs> you don't see guys like that very often. Um, 
I think pretty highly of Hani Barcelos. Uh, I think he's 35, which I think is probably kind of contributing to this. But he has a winning UFC record. You know, for a while he was undefeated in the UFC, uh, including you know, he beat Saeed Nurmagomedov, who's a very good guy. Uh, he has a win over uh, Chris Gutierrez, who's a top bantamweight. Um, Gutierrez knocked out uh, Frankie Edgar recently. So, Barcelos is no one to sneeze at. In fact, he's, yeah, Honey Barcelos is the only guy to beat Chris Gutierrez in the UFC. Um, I think Nurmagomedov said, yeah, he'll fight Chris Gutierrez. He just wants to fight a top guy. And, yeah. Yeah, give give Umar Nurmagomedov a top bantamweight. Um, that's a real like that guy is probably going to be champion. And I don't say I don't say he's going to fight for the belt. Him fighting for the belt at a bare minimum, I would say, is inevitable. Him winning the belt might also be. Like, uh, I know he was ranked number eleven coming into this. He should have been ranked higher, and he should be like there's some reshuffling at some of the some of the rankings that should go on after this um and yeah give that guy somebody at the top he's he's coming for that belt <laughs> uh that was the main card oh yeah the other fight we also lost a fight on weigh-in day um we lost priscilla cashwaya and sajara eubanks uh eubanks had some kind of medical issue related to her weight cut again uh, I'm not crying over not watching that fight. So that was the main card. Uh, prelims, Javid Basharat defeated Mateus Mendonce uh, via unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Uh, I give Mendonce credit. He came after the fight, but just not not enough skill to deal with Basharat. Basharat, pretty good decision maker. Um, long for the division. Good jab. Uh, yeah, I, Basharat's, uh, he's been starting to stand out a little bit, so good on him. Middleweights, uh, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan defeated Claudio Hibero via knockout, um, 28 seconds into the second round. Pretty needed win for Al-Hassan. Um, he had the head kick win over, uh, Alessio De Chirico. Or Dicky Rico, sorry, it's Dicky Rico. Uh, that was in August of last year, but he got he lost that Buckley fight. He had a three-fight losing streak before the Dicky Rico fight. Uh, he needed the win here. He needed the win pretty badly, and you know, God, it was a really pretty good finish. Pretty good finish from him. Um, apparently, he wants a rematch with Buckley after how their first fight went. I mean, I appreciate you being annoyed by that fight. I watched it. It sucked. I don't know if there's an appetite for a rematch. Is all I'm saying there. Uh, oh, this one. Look, I don't mean this to come off as weird. What I'm about to say, but um, the Polish language is just weird. Uh, so I, I mentioned this a little bit. 
last week, because the guy I'm about to fight, I last week I called him uh, Mateusz Rebecki. Because his last name is spelled R-E-B-E-C-K-I. There's an accent under the E. Um, I forget which accent that is. Forgive me. It probably has a different name if it's Polish versus a... If it's a, like a... Because Polish is kind of a Cyrillic alphabet slash Slavic language versus a, you know, a more, like, romantic language. Like, I, I seem to recall what that is in, like, French or, um... I think Spanish. I think, I think they call that accent the same thing, but I don't think it's the same thing, and I don't think it means the same thing in... Um, again, kind of the Eastern Europe, the more Eastern European and like Slavic style languages. So forgive me. I, f- I forget what the accent is called. It's kind of the long and short of that there. Um, then listening to the commentators go, yeah, it's Mateusz um, Rembeski. And <laughs> I, so I said last week, man, I, I apologize. I knew I was mispronouncing that guy's name, but man. That language is, and I don't mean this unkindly, like the Polish language is a little bit weird. Um, he put a beating on Nick Fior. So uh, he came out like, he came out real hard, came out real heavy. A um, lot of offense. Uh, when Fiore didn't kind of go away, uh, Rimbeski went to the, went to the takedowns, went to his grappling, didn't pass a whole lot, but was good about timing his double legs. Getting on top, doing enough damage to stay there, and Fjord couldn't do anything off of his back. I mean, that first round was a borderline 10-8. One judge gave it to him. The score, there were two 30-27s and one 30-26. Um, if Rembeski can kind of kind of figure out his energy management, because he can't, like I said, he came out real heavy, and he faded down the stretch. I mean, they both did. But the pace he had in the first round was a little bit nuts. What was it? Because it was crazy. Um, look at that fight. Uh, yeah, if we go per round. Yeah, Rembe- uh, Rembeski threw 101 strikes in the first round. That's a lot. I've done this before, like... And to be uh, well, to be fair, those are significant strikes. This is total round by round. Um. Okay. Apparently, if we go by total, it was 100 and, 107. Yeah. So, so of the 107 strikes that he threw, 101 of them were ruled as significant. I I maintain this, man. Like that's a hard pace to keep on a heavy bag, much less in a fight. Like you, you just you know next time you want to do a heavy bag workout you know, give yourself five minutes and go okay I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw 107 strikes and most of the and not have like all of them be jabs like that that's a pretty crazy pace it fell off after that like round two he threw a total of 76 strikes round three 45 so he was feeling it because. I'm not saying there aren't people who can fight at that like crazy pace. There's a very there's very few people who can fight. You can do a hundred strikes around, round over round, and keep that pace. That's very very rare. So if he can kind of sort that out, um, he might be somebody to pay attention to. This this was like 14 in a row for him. So 
Uh, yeah, he might be someone to pay attention to. Certainly a prospect. Uh, let's see. Flyweight Alad Nascimento defeated Carlos Hernandez via rear naked choke. The 16 of the first. Um, just better grappling from Nascimento. He got her, uh, Hernandez to overcommit pretty early. Got him down. He bounced up, but he gave up his back. Um, and Nascimento, just good back control. Got the choke standing. Nice adjustment of his grip. Um, he started with kind of the figure four grip, right? Um, if you don't know what I mean by that, if you're choking someone with your left arm, it's like either figure four and you kind of transitioned into more of a scissor grip, ideally. So if you're choking someone with your left arm, kind of do this in the air, like imagine you're choking someone, then put your left hand on your right bicep, kind of in the crook of your elbow. And that position there is kind of the figure four. And then ideally your right hand goes behind the head and neck and you kind of scissor that forward as you pull that back. That hand goes forward, your left shoulder goes back, it it just destroys all the space that their neck is occupying, and that's what gives you the best submission. It also gives you some control over that. Don't put the hand on top of the head, please. I, uh, you gotta hide it, because if it's on top of the head, it wasn't here, he wasn't doing the push. This is, um, this is a thing that people who don't know what they're doing do, and you see this a lot in like schoolyard fights. Somebody gets that, and then they they take their uh, the free hand, the leverage hand, and instead of putting it behind the head, they put it on top of that and try to push down. If it's on top of your head like that, it's very easy to grab. Don't do that. Get it behind the head. That's where you want to hide it. Because if it's once it's back there, you're done. Like you can't really. It's almost impossible to reach back, grab that, and then kind of leverage it out from behind their own head. It just doesn't happen. But before he could get the hand behind the head, he's kind of got there. He's kind of got the, just the straight figure four. And Hernandez grabs the leverage arm and pulls it down like you're supposed to. If you if they don't have a great grip on your arm when they pull down like that, you can transition your grip. And that's what Nascimento did. He switched from trying to, again, figure four his arms. I believe he went palm to palm, so a gable grip. There's a different variation of palm to palm that isn't technically a gable grip, because gable grip doesn't involve the thumbs, but doesn't matter. I believe this was gable. And you can finish from there. You can still very easily finish that choke from there. So being mindful of how you can switch your grips up in the midst of hand fighting is a very important tool for people to develop. And Nascimento had that. Uh, featherweights, Daniel Argueta defeated Nick Aguirre via unanimous decision, 30-27. This fight sucked. Uh, and kicking everything off, Charles Johnson defeated Jimmy Slick via TKO, elbows and punches for 33 of the first. Um, I'm not, be very clear with what I'm about to say. This, like, Charles Johnson was winning this round pretty handily. I thought the stoppage was a little early. Um, Flick didn't protest in the sense that how, man, you know, how dare you stop me that early? But... And, like, the entire momentum the fight was with Johnson. So, I'm I'm not up in arms over it. It was just, you know, you very rarely see MMA stoppages this early. It's more the point that I'm making. So, good performance out of Johnson. I mean, this was Flick's first fight back in, like, two years. You know, there was clearly some ring rust that he needs to knock off. So, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, that was the card. Not the best, not the worst. Uh, it happened. Um, there was no fight of the night. I think that's fair. 
Your performances of the night went to Dan Ige, Roman Kopilov, Umar Namagamadov, and Alan Nascimento. I'm not objecting to any of that. Um, all of that seems very, very fair to me. So, if you want my full report, including clips of finishes and my live round-by-round scoring and whatnot, that is in the MMAZone411mania.com. Please give it a look if you are so inclined. As always, I thank you for that. All right, let us... Let's keep moving on. Keep on keeping on. UFC 283. This coming Saturday. They're, again, they're back in Rio de Janeiro. How long has it been since they were in... Was their last Brazil fight um, 2020? Because they had the one event in Brazil that was right before COVID kind of... Before they had to, like, cancel March, April, and part of May. Now, that was in Brasilia. That was um, Lee and Oliveira's your main event. Then, let's see, what do we got? We got Jacksonville, Vegas, Abu Dhabi, Vegas, Abu Dhabi, Vegas, Abu Dhabi, Vegas. Jacksonville, Vegas, Houston, Vegas, Glendale, Vegas, Houston, Vegas, Abu Dhabi, New York, Vegas. Anaheim, Vegas, Houston, Vegas, London, Columbus. Hmm, forgot that that was there, yeah. Um, back to Jacksonville, Vegas, Phoenix, Vegas, Singapore. Yeah, Teixeira, I forget that. Teixeira and Prohachka. That bonkers fight was in Singapore. <laughs> um, Austin, Vegas, Elmont, New York, of all places. Um, London, again. Dallas, Vegas, San Diego, Salt Lake, Paris, Vegas. Abu Dhabi, Vegas, New York, Vegas, Orlando, Vegas. Yeah. Yeah, first time in almost three years. It was March. Yeah, March of 2020. So, yeah, almost three years. Wow. Yeah, I know, Kat. Sheesh. Um, main event. For the light heavyweight title, the vacant light heavyweight title, uh, former champion Glover Teixeira and Jamal Hill. This fight came together pretty quickly because we had the draw in the fight between Jan Blachowicz and Magomed Ankalaev. Um, as of this recording, I'm gonna get on. I'm gonna get to this news later, but for the record, as of this recording. Both the heavyweight and light heavyweight titles are vacant for the UFC. Uh, ain't that a trip, man. Um, that's a tough one. Uh, I can see either man winning. So, there's that. Uh, if... Glover Teixeira can get this to the ground. He can win this and probably should. Hill's not very good off of his back. Here's what Hill is good at. He's good at finding, he's good at landing damage and he's good at like managing distance. I mean, he's never gone the distance in the UF. He has once. His UFC debut was a unanimous decision over Darko Stozic. Uh, then... He beats Klitsin Abreu. That got changed to a no contest. He stops Ovin St. Prue in the second round. He loses to Paul Craig. Again, he got taken down there. 
Then he knocks out Jimmy Crute in 48 seconds. He knocks out Johnny Walker in less than three minutes. Tiago Santos lasted into the fourth before he got stopped. Hill puts damage on you. Now, this is large again, this is largely going to come down to whether or not Glover Teixeira can get this fight to the ground. Not that Glover can't throw hands. He can. I don't think he wants to throw hands with Jamal Hill. Teixeira's chin is not what it used to be. Now, I know he, like, persevered through some pretty wild sequences in that fight with Yuri Prohachka. However, I'm going to go out on a limb here, maybe. I think Jamal Hill punches harder than Yuri Prohachka does. So, I don't think Teixeira wants a lot of... I don't think he wants to, like, engage in a firefight with Jamal Hill. I think that would go very badly for him. But if he can get this, he's good about backing you up. He's good about making you fight his kind of fight. He just is. Um, so this is kind of a tough one. Like, I don't think this is going to be a back-and-forth fight. It might be, but I don't think so. I think this is going to go pretty heavily one way or the other, depending entirely who on who... Like, who, who makes this fight theirs? So, I don't know. Like, th this is a tough one. This is a real tough one. I think my hunch at this point might be to lean towards Hill. Um, what's the age difference, Hill? Jamal Hill is 31. Teixeira is 43. Yeah, that age difference is going to... That could be a real thing here. Now, Teixeira's got more experience. He's, you know, more battle-tested in that respect. He's fought longer fights. Like, I don't know, I just... I'm not saying there's no reason to pick Teixeira. I am going to pick Jamal Hill. I don't... I don't know that Teixeira can stand up to the punishment that Hill can put on you at this point. I might be wrong. He might, you know, absorb a couple of tough shots, but not be hurt enough to be put out and then get the clinch, get the takedown. Like that's very possible. So uh, close fight. And in theory, we'll have a light heavyweight champion after this. I would laugh. I will almost die laughing if something weird happens to this fight and we get a non-finish. Like just throwing that out there. Like that would be the funniest thing in the world to me. Co-main event. Because we can't have the little guys main eventing ever. The UFC hates flyweights. Um, for the flyweight title, a historic fourth fight between two fighters. A first in UFC history. Your champion, Davis and Figueredo. Your interim champion, Brandon Moreno. They are 1-1-1 one, one, and one to this point. First fight was a draw. Very good fight. Second fight, Moreno makes some adjustments and just has a the performance of his life, gets the win. Third fight, Figueredo brings it back. Moreno gets a little bit too amped up and just kind of can't do a whole lot. Um, then we arrive at this fight, and I still don't know what to expect out of these two. A couple of things about this. One, Brandon Moreno has to have changed his—he had to change his camp. He had been training out of Glory MMA and Fitness, which was James Krause's gym. Everybody had to leave that gym uh, because of the betting scandal. And it's not that he wound up with a bad camp. I think he wound up with um, Safe Saud, right? Let's see if I can find that there. 
Um, yeah, I believe he's with uh, is Sniff's Hayward Factory X. Let me double check. Hang on. Uh, Fortis. Mark Montoya's Factory X. Sniff's Hayward is Fortis MMA. That's a good camp, and Safe Slaywood is a very good coach. But, and I, I bring this up only because this is relevant. The, the connection between fighters and coaches is very important, and they don't form overnight. But that's kind of an X factor here. Figueredo is still with the same camp he's always been with. Um, this is probably going to be a very good fight. Like, none of these fight... All three of the fights between these two guys have been different. Like, they've never played out the same way. They've never been boring, uh, either. So, I I don't know, man. Like, the way these two match up, they just... The most definitive win in the series belongs to Moreno, who got the finish in their second fight. So, there is that to consider. I actually do think I'm going to lean towards Figueredo just a little bit. Um, just because I have to make a pick for the sake of the discussion here. I'm going to lean a little bit towards Figueredo. Um, yeah. I think he, I think not only his power is kind of a problem, I think if Moreno's... Moreno has to make some pretty serious tactical adjustments after their second fight. Because Figueredo did. Now, Moreno's got power as well. In fact, Moreno, you know, he gave Figueredo some problems in their second fight on occasion. Or their third fight, sorry. But Figueredo's responses to those moments were better in their third fight. And that's kind of what undid Moreno. When Figueredo didn't react the way he expected him to, he couldn't adjust. So, again, real-time adjustments, very, very hard. He might have made those adjustments since then. I don't know. But between the camp changes and Moreno not having the best outing against Kai Carafrance, I know he got the win eventually. But, like, he went... I think Carafrance won that second round, if memory serves. Did that end in the second? I think it ended in the third. Yeah, it was in the third. And... I think Kaikara France had won the second and was kind of starting to come on. So, I don't know, again, this could go any number of ways. These two guys make for a variety of stylistic fights. Uh, like I said, none of their three fights have been the same at all. So, looking forward to it. Going to lean Figueredo, but good fight. Also a good fight. Welterweight Gilbert Burns and Neil Magny. Um, I uh, don't have a lot of problems picking Gilbert Burns here. If Burns is aggressive, and he's been aggressive lately, I think he'll probably get Magny in trouble. Um, if he gets on top of Magny, Magny has struggled a little bit off of his back. And Burns is a very good uh, MMA grappler, so. And he's obviously a jiu-jitsu black. When I say MMA grappler, I'm... I just mean to say that his jiu-jitsu has adapted well to MMA, where other jiu-jitsu black belts and whatnot, like, even some high-level ones have struggled to adapt. Burns' grappling is very good for MMA, so... I'm going to lean towards... I'm going to pick Gilbert Burns there. Women's flyweight, Jessica Andrade and Lauren Murphy. Lauren Murphy's 
tough, but she's kind of hittable. And Jessica Andrade hits really hard. Uh, I'm picking Jessica Andrade. <laughs> and kicking off the main card. Crazily enough, this is probably your backup for the main event. If something happens to one of the participants, I imagine one of these two guys gets pulled up. As, as crazy as that is when, you, when I mention these names, mind you. Um, but Paul Craig and Johnny Walker, too, too crazy. Oh, I don't know what to think about this one. Um, Johnny Walker probably about to be ejected onto the streets of Rio <laughs> in his fight kit once again. <laughs> oh, that was that was such a bad look for the UFC. Oh man. Um. The question is kind of, can Walker avoid the one thing Paul Craig does? He might be able to. I'm going to pick Craig. I don't I don't care. Like, that's a coin flip in a lot of respects. There, no one really knows what to expect from the, the combination of these two guys. So, that's your main card. You got a good top three fights there. So, hopefully they hold together. On the prelims... For allegedly the final time, Mauricio Shogun Hua, former champion, legend of the sport, will make the walk. He will fight Ihor Poteria. Um, double check. I believe Poteria has fought for the UFC before. I want to say at least at least once. Um. He is got a good record. He's 18 and three. Yeah, he's fought for the UFC once. Yeah, he lost. Oh yeah, the Nikolai Negromarianu fight. Uh, UFC 277. I vaguely recall that. Um, this is as close to a a, a farewell kind of setup as the UFC gives. And for whatever it's worth, man, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be rooting for Shogun. So. Uh, I'll pick him here. Why not? Uh, middleweight, Gregory Rodriguez. Uh, Robocop himself. Who's coming off of that win over Chidi and Jaquani, but he had that absolutely horrible cut. Like, split right between the eyes. Gave him a unibrow kind of thing. Like, looked like Cyclops, the X-Men. With a visor, like, just, ugh. If I could have been stopped because of that, how bad that cut was, but he... Persevered through the second, which is when it got really bad. And got the finish. Uh, he's fighting Bruno Ferreira. Um, is this Ferreira's UFC debut? He's undefeated, I believe it is. Uh, yeah, he's coming off the Contender Series. I'm going to pick Rodriguez. Um, Rodriguez, rather. He's Brazilian. I actually think he prefers Rodriguez. I don't know why he does, but I think he does, so... Whatever that's worth. Um, picking Gregory Rodriguez. The man doesn't have boring fights, if nothing else. Lightweights. Tiago Moises was supposed to get run over by Guram Kuta Deladze, which would have been my pick for that. Um, Kuta Deladze, unfortunately, had to pull out. Um, instead, in steps, uh, Melchielzel Costa. Melchielzel? I apologize. I know I'm pronouncing that first name wrong. I'm going to go with Milky Hazel until I hear proper pronunciation. Um, 
Yeah, I, given the circumstances, I'm happy to pick Tiago Moises. Uh, Welterweights, Munir Lazez and Gabriel Bonfirm. The Bonfirm is undefeated, 13-0. He is your uh, Brazilian guy here. Pretty good record. Um, Lazez has a couple of fights in the UFC. He has gone 2-1. and one. Hmm. I'm gonna... I'm actually going to pick Lazez here, but that's a very slight lean. I would not I would not bet on this one. Then our earlier prelims, heavyweights, Shamil Abdurrahimov and Jailton Almeida. I believe that's a pick for Jailton Almeida, who has looked really good, kind of bouncing around between heavyweight and light heavyweight. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty... I don't mean to disrespect Shamil Abdurrahimov, who's a... He's got a winning UFC record, I seem to recall. He's on a three-fight losing streak, actually. That might complicate things. It's closer to 500 than you might think, but... Yeah, picking Almeida. Uh, lightweight, Terrence McKenney and Ismail Bonfirm. I assume brother of the other Bonfirm. Bonfim? Uh, I need a better look at that. Yeah, Bonfim, excuse me. I... Slightly smaller font. Uh, Bonfim. Uh... McKenney's pretty darn good. Uh, he had the loss to, to Drew Dober, but other than that, you know, he's looked pretty good. So, that's a, I don't have too many problems picking Terrence McKinney there. Uh, welterweight, Warley Alves and Nicholas Dalby. Warley Alves. Well, you have been here for a long time, man. He's 32. But you may recall this. He debuted for the UFC in 2014. He won the third season of The Ultimate Fighter Brazil. Didn't mean anything back then either, for the record. But he had a pretty... He like, for a while, he was Colby Covington's only loss in the UFC. Might have been his first loss ever. Um, I mean, he's just kind of been up and down. He's lost stretches of time. Missed all of 2020. Uh... He's not big. Hang on. So he only fought, he fought twice in 14, twice in 15, twice in 16, once in 17, twice in 18, twice in 19, missed all of 2020, uh, and twice in 2021, just January and June. So he's, he, he's not been completely inactive, but um, just weird scheduling, too. So, uh, anyway, been a bit up and down recently, coming off a loss to Jeremiah Wells. Um, whereas Dalby beat Claudio Silva. Had a pretty good fight with Tim Means before that. He lost, but it was a pretty good fight. Um, I'll probably go with Dalby here. Women's featherweight, Josiane Nunez and uh, Sarah Farim Dos Santos. Josie Nunez is... Panamanian. No, no, sorry, confusing with somebody else. You with a different, um, you with Jocelyn something or other. Anywho. Uh, Nunez, 9-1, 2-0 in the UFC. She's beaten Bia Malecki and Ramona Pasquale. 
Uh, Farim is 0-2 in the UFC. Seems like a bit of a setup. Um, a little bit of a setup for uh, Nunez here. Bantamweight, Luan Lacerda um, and Cody Stamen. Lacerda here. I want to make sure I remember who he is. This is UFC debut. Have I seen him before or am I confusing him with someone else? I think I'm confusing him with someone else who has a very similar, or two fighters, one of them has a similar first name, one of them has the same last name. Entirely possible. This is UFC debut. Uh, Stamen's not an easy pull. I mean, Stamen is, he's 6-4, six 6-1-1 four, six one one technically in the UFC. His losses, however, have been to, he's only lost to really good guys, actually. Aljamain Sterling, current champion, Jimmy Rivera. Tough out. Marab really top guy at the moment. And Saeed Nurmagomedov, also one of the better bantamweights. Um, he knocked out Eddie Wineland his last time out. I'm going to lean towards Stamen, but... Um, yeah. That's what, and kicking everything off, also at bantamweight, Simon Oliveira and Daniel Marcos. I... Honestly, I've seen Simon Oliveira. Excuse me. Yeah, I have. He lost his UFC debut. Tony Gravely. Vaguely recall that. It was about a year ago. On the uh, UFC 270, the Ngannou and Gone card. And I vaguely recall that. Um, whereas Marcos, I want to say this is his UFC debut. He is a... that flag and I want to take a stab at it before I look not Ecuador Peru ah Peru I have a decent memory for flags uh, this is his UFC debut he's undefeated is he really undefeated didn't I just say he wasn't yes yeah sorry he's 13 and 0 if I said differently before I misspoke um not a bad fight. I, I think I'll lean towards Marcos there, actually. Um, but we'll have to see. So that is the card at the moment. I will have a I'll have full coverage, of course, Saturday in the MMAZona411mania.com. So if you're interested, please do stop by, say hello. I always appreciate it. All right, let's move on to the news. Uh, the news. Let's start with Dana White, shall we? So Dana White... At the um, the pre-fight press conference for uh, the last card, said that there will be no punishment for him. Well, I shouldn't say that. Of course, there will be punishment. He has to walk around for the rest of his life labeled as someone who did what he did. Don't you understand? That's his punishment. This is such stupid. <laughs> That's such stupid logic. You know, um, I really hope the memes about this never die. The meme. The fact that he said that, like, a bunch of fi a bunch of people on Twitter jumped on it right away. A bunch of fighters jumped on it right away. I think my favorite one was, um, <laughs> I think my favorite one was somebody going, 
Yeah, I may have illegally streamed every UFC pay-per-view, but I've got to carry around the label of a internet pirate, and really, that's punishment enough. Like, we all know the UFC would not be using the same logic for that. Um, somebody... <laughs> uh, somewhat related to the next bit of news, but before UFC on ESPN Plus 75, um... This did not take place at this arena. Uh, this was at the Apex, the you know, last week's card. But um, the T-Mobile Arena had their big electronic billboard on the outside of their thing. At some point during the day, during that Saturday, had up for a period of time a an advertisement. A, um, a it's just a billboard, right? So it's just the static images. But it was UFC 285. John Jones versus Cyril Gaon for the UFC heavyweight title. And people walking by or dry, like saw this, took pictures of it, and put it on the internet. Um, it turned out to be true. Again, next bit of news. Promise we'll get to it. But you know, the jokes that came out of that were, you know, I can't wait for you know the UFC to announce they've escorted the T-Mobile billboard from the arena. Or, you know, the employee who made this gaffe uh, because uh, it obviously wasn't supposed to be broadcast until after the official announcement. I'm just going, you know, yeah, I screwed up, but really isn't that punishment enough that I am forever labeled as the guy who erroneous. Like, I really hope the memes around these around that statement never go away, because it's so stupid. You know, Dana doing the the MMA media is so. The people at the press conferences, in this instance, um, just anytime Dana starts pushing back, like they just they they fold, like a house of cards. They just immediately, immediately stop lines of questioning. They stop, like, just again immediately, because Dana asked them, "So what should my punishment be?" And all of them, well, I don't know. Look. Okay, you you want my opinion? My opinion doesn't really matter here, but okay, I'll give it to you. How about four month? How about a four month suspension, mandatory mandatory counseling, and there's going to be an internal investigation into the damage that was done over this. And uh, the UFC, as an entity, will be making a charitable donation to one of the reputable organizations that deals with domestic violence. Hmm? How about that? How about you're gone for four months? You have to take counseling. But again, again, of course, no one's going to say that to him, because if Dana revokes your press credentials, if you lose access, you. It's very easy to find someone the UFC will tolerate to take your job if the UFC doesn't like you. There's very few people that can. Not impossible, mind you, but it's difficult to do a lot of this stuff if the UFC cuts off your access. So, of course, no one's going to push back because it is what it is in that respect. So, there was a lot of that. There was... Nothing's going to happen. Just straight up, nothing. And I can't stress how sad and pathetic that is. And Dana also came out and said, you know, so what if I'm gone for a few months? Who does that hurt? It doesn't hurt me. I could have retired in 2016. You could have. You know, it hurts the 
company, it hurts the business, it hurts the fighters, and you know what? You know what? How about we have this conversation, shall we? Let me start with by saying this. The current position of the UFC is owed a lot to the work ethic of Dana White. I mean, let me start with this. He would go to ev- he would go to any and all events. He would talk to anyone, almost. You know, obviously there were exceptions there, but you know, any outlet he would talk to. He was trying to promote the UFC brand and the sport in general. And that was, and he worked himself darn near into the ground doing it. And that needs to be acknowledged. He didn't just do that for a lot of years. The scheduling and everything probably took some years off of his life. Like he cut stuff off the end there. The U- I don't know that with, without his involvement at, at a certain point in time, and for a serious period of that point in time, mind you, I don't know what the UFC looks like now if not for Dana White. Give the man his flowers in that respect. He earned every one of them. And I mean that. It is not true anymore. There was a time when Dana White was a necessity. When he was essential to the product, to what it became, to its growth, all of it. It is no longer true. I'm not saying he has no benefit. There's a... The difference between necessity and benefit is enormous, and people forget this sometimes. The difference between necessity and benefit. For a while, Dana White's presence and everything else was a necessity for the UFC's success. I believe that. It is no longer true. Now he's a benefit. His presence... To an extent, right? His presence is theoretically a benefit. It is not a necessity. It is not at all a necessity. I got a hunch about why Dana didn't want to go away. Like, you know he kind of decided for himself, like, yeah, here's what we're going to do. And it's nothing. You like, He got to kind of decide what his own punishment was going to be and just, ugh. Just, ugh. But, I got a hunch about why he didn't want to go away. I'm sure there's more than one reason at play here, right? This is a complicated issue. But I think Dana knows he's not necessary. Like, somewhere in his mind, he knows he is not necessary. I think what he's afraid of is everyone else realizing it. Now, if I say, because we all kind of know this, like, if I were to poll MMA fans in general, you're going to have the weirdos. But in general, like, is Dana White a necessary component of the UFC machinery in 2023? Bear in mind, not a beneficial component of the machinery, a necessary component of the machinery. The answer is no. And I think most people would, if they thought about it, go, huh, probably true. We don't need him. But there's a difference between having to kind of come to that and knowing it and having evidence of it. If Dana White went away for four months, if he was suspended for four months, and 
every single thing about the UFC just kept working as it's always worked without him. Uh, I think he doesn't want people to realize how expendable he has become. Because, for whatever number of reasons that might be, maybe it's ego, maybe it's, you know, he just likes continuing to work, maybe he, you know, still needs the money that the presidency of the UFC provides, like any number of things, right? Who knows? But, but he's not necessary anymore. He's still, I still think he's probably a benefit, probably, not, mm. You get a lot of bad headlines coming out of this one, though, man. You get a lot of bad headlines coming out of this one. But on balance, he's probably still a benefit. But this is why this logic that he just threw out there, like, it hurts It hurts the fighters. Bull. That is, that is a lie. That is a bald-faced lie. That you not being there hurts the fighters. It doesn't hurt them one iota. All their revenues already, whatever it's going to be. You've you got that all locked down. Here's the reality of the UFC right now. And let me be clear. You can't have both of the... It cannot be true that Dana White is necessary and that the UFC is a well-oiled machine that, you know, kind of just functions. The UFC is a billion-dollar company. They had a billion dollars in revenue in 2022. You have your, you know, 300-some-odd million dollars guaranteed, assuming you hit your number of events from ESPN. You have whatever TSN pays you. You have whatever Sky Sports pays you in England. Or the UK, rather. So not just England, but the UK. You have whatever, I think it's Globo in Brazil. I forget their broadcast, but you have whatever the Australian broadcast people pay. Or you, have what, like, you have television deals in place around the world. You have ticket sales. You have merchandising. You get the lion's share. Like, everything in place. You have put everything in place to make this a well-oiled and... Let's be clear about this when it comes to the UFC machinery. I'm not saying it's the smoothest ride in the world. But when was the last time... Like, you can you can remember vividly the times they have had genuine hiccups. And I mean, bear in mind, I mean genuine hiccups. Because they're so rare. How, how many events has the UFC canceled in the last, like, 10, call it 10, 13 years. I mean, the majority of them, like, all, in fact, I think all of them, not all, but like all but two, were canceled because of COVID. You had that block. You know, the last time you have to go back to find a canceled UFC event after that, before that block of, of events? Let me look this up, actually. So, we have the COVID cancellations, right? How far back do we have to go to find something else that was canceled before that? Um, 2019, 
the Cejudo and Dillashaw thing in Anaheim, right? It was UFC 233. Um, so you had that. So 1 in 19. How far back do we have to go to the next one? Um, 2016. So three years. Most people even forget this one exists, mind you. You had a fight night that was supposed to take place in the Philippines. Uh, main event of Ricardo Lamas and BJ Penn. I forget why that was canceled, actually. Why did that cancel? Um, Penn got injured. Yeah, just BJ Penn fell out of the fight for some for an injury, and for the record. Nowadays, they would have just gone through with that card. Um, so, that one in 16. How much further back do we have to go? Do, do, do. I gave us, like, what? A little over... So, then 2014, we have UFC 176, Aldo Mendez 2. And then, before that, you have jo the Jones-Henderson event, UFC 151. And I think that's kind of it. So, since two, so in, you know, 2012, so, you know, like 10 years. Let me scroll down just for the sake of argument here. Yeah, like, it, that's it. Like, 151 was, like, kind of famously the first one the UFC canceled, maybe ever. Like, they'd pulled up stakes and moved states before but they'd never yeah so in the entire history of the ufc like you have several that were global pandemic the others you can count them on one hand the the, the trains leave the station on time in the ufc it it cannot be the case that the ufc is set up at this point to run this efficiently and the whole dang opera falls apart without Dana White and everyone suffers. It cannot be the case that those two things are both true. So, are we lying about revenue streams, profitability, and all that stuff? Which, by the way, they're not. Or, is Dana White not the linchpin of the organization's success anymore? You tell me is a, a company owned by a publicly traded company, Endeavor, lying about all of their financial returns and risking all kinds of penalties, all kinds of legal problems, all kinds of... Or is Dana White just not that important anymore? You tell me about that one. Now, I'm not saying if Dana White went away tomorrow, there wouldn't... I'm not saying there wouldn't be some kind of adjustment. Like, Dana's been there forever. There would be an adjustment period from the fans and everyone else, but would it stop the machine? No! Emphatically, no! Dana White could leave tomorrow. Every event on the books right now is still going to go off. 
Uh, no. <laughs> so, we're trotting out this line of BS. It's, uh... You know, for as much as... For as much as the UFC wants mainstream recognition, and they've got it to, I think, to the the degree that they're ever going to. You're on ESPN. What what else are you after here? You're getting paid hundreds of millions of dollars a year, guaranteed. To say nothing of again ad revenue that you get a chunk of. To say nothing of the pay-per-views that you get a cut of. To say nothing of whatever else, right? Say nothing of your television deals around the world, right? And yet, the UFC also hates it because it comes because it comes with this it comes with this level of scrutiny, it comes with this level of occasional bad press. Dana White is, you, you know what? Let me come up with the most accurate. Okay. Here's the most accurate comparison between Dana White and a fictional character that I can come up with kind of off the top of my head. If you've ever seen A Few Good Men, watch it again, or either think back to it or watch it for the first time. And you tell me that Jack Nicholson's character in that movie, uh, Colonel Nathan Jessup, if memory serves, is not just Dana White. Dana White wants to have his fiefdom. And he doesn't care what he does, and he does not want to be questioned about it. And... Uh, I don't know. It's... It's just a thing, I guess. So that's the update on that. Again, never let the man live down that statement. Meme him into oblivion. I beg of you people, whatever value my audience has in this, keep the memes alive. That's too good a soundbite not to meme into oblivion. All right, uh, moving on. Here's the other big news of the, of the week. So Francis Ngannou, the UFC heavyweight champion, is gone. He is a free agent. The UFC has stripped him of the title. He is exploring options. Uh, the aforementioned fight that, uh, between Cyril Ghosn and John Jones is set for UFC 285 and will be for the heavyweight title. Um, this is big. It's not quite as big as some people would like it to be, so let, let's unpack a few things here. Um, one, this is the first real break in the lineage of the UFC heavyweight title ever? Let me think about this for a second. Hang on. Let me, I'm curious about this now. Um, okay, maybe not ever, but certainly in... Certainly for a long time. They had a few interim champions here and there, but Arlovsky got promoted very quickly, and then, like, 
Mir wasn't the same when he came back from the motorcycle accident. Then you had Mir and Sylvia. Uh, then you had Randy beat Mir. Randy defended the belt, lost. He had his contract dispute, but he lost the belt to Brock, who defended it a couple of times before losing to Kane. Lost to JDS, lost to Kane. He lost to Verdum. Yeah, this thing... The UFC heavyweight title has had a fairly straight path, believe it or not. Again, you've had some interim champions here and there, but apart from Frank Mir being stripped because of the uh, the injury, like it's been, I'd say smooth sailing because there have been some absolute terrible fights, but. Like, that title has a pretty strict lineage that was never really in dispute. Not something you could say about a lot of the other belts. They've all had kind of wonky claims at different times. The heavyweight belt's been... has not really had that. So that that's kind of a big deal. Here's another fun fact for you. This is the first time a UFC champion has walked away from the promotion, been able to walk away from the promotion, mind you, since BJ Penn did it in 2004, right? Because he beat Matt Hughes and then had his dispute with the UFC and, like, he wanted to do other stuff and left. For context, I graduated high school in 2004. That's how long ago, God, I'm old, that since this happened. Um, we're probably going to see a little bit more of this, and for a very specific reason. This is the result of some of the litigation brought against the UFC. If you'll recall, there is still an ongoing lawsuit against them. Um, but because of that lawsuit, they had to change some of their contract structure going forward from the point of the lawsuit, basically. Um, which w and the new contracts that they were offering starting around 2017 had sunset clauses in them of five years. Francis is taking advantage of that here. And I, he won't be the last one to do so. Just for the record, he will not be the last one to do so. So pay attention to that going forward. That might become a little bit more common because the UFC's hand was forced via some of the lawsuit stuff going on to change their practices. Um, again, now, Cyril God will fight John Jones, UFC 285 for the heavyweight belt. I'm not complaining about that fight. John's been out forever. We, have, we I believe, have hit the 10-year anniversary of John Jones saying I'm going to heavyweight. I believe he first floated that around 2013. So, 10 years later... Finally going to happen. Um, look, John is the best fighter I've ever seen. Uh, I absolutely maintain that. What he's going to look like after this much time off, up a weight class, I don't even know. I cannot begin to figure out that fight. I just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to think about it more before we get to that event for a pick. But my hunch right now is, uh, I don't have a hunch, like, there's, there is nothing known about John Jones at heavyweight ever, much less at his age, much less with this layoff. Like, who knows? So, we will we'll deal with that later. 
Assuming that fight ever... Look, it's signed, it's announced. I don't mind talking about it in that context. Is anybody going to be shocked if that falls apart between now and then? Just saying. And that that's not just me digging at John, either, for the record. Like, fights fall apart. Would anyone be surprised if that fight fell apart? So, there's that. Um, I don't know what Francis Ngannou does. He... There's options. Now, here's one of the things. Let me just... Because the UFC has started their usual BS about fighters who leave. Francis turned down the uh, contract that would have made him the highest paid heavyweight in history. Well, slow your roll, buddy. First, you mean highest paid heavyweight MMA fighter in UFC history, and those are all very important qualifiers. I mean, for crying out loud, there's there were heavyweights in boxing not adjusting for inflation, earning more than your current heavyweights 20 years ago. So stop with your nonsensical phrasing, words matter. Second, let's play a game, shall we? I know the answers to the, the answer to the following questions, right? So for the sake of you out there, who is the highest paid heavyweight in UFC history? Do you know? I do. I'm gonna, Obviously, I know. I'm going to tell you, but think about it for half a second. Pause if you want. Who is the highest paid heavyweight in UFC history? And we know the answer to this because of all the stuff the UFC has had to disclose for court documents. The answer is Brock Lesnar. Here's, a, here's another question. Which is, like, what's the most Brock Lesnar was paid for a single fight? All said and done. Again, we know the answer to this question. The answer is his fight at UFC 200 against Mark Hunt. All said and done, Brock pulled $8 million for that fight. Now, that's not what his contract was in the strictest sense. He was on a flat fee for his contract. In fact, let me see if I can look that up. I believe that was when they were still full disclosed. Yeah. So Brock was paid flat fee $2.5 million for that fight. The, the uh, rest of that comes from his, his pay-per-view percentage, right? He had pay-per-view points. And it had, you know, UFC 200 was a very successful event. It had, what, a little over a million in buys, so? Now, why do I bring all that up? Because Dana White might have offered him a non-flat fee, right? Because, again, if Brock is a flat 2.5, maybe all they're counting is what's on the contract in Guaranteed. So if they offer him one and one, sorry, you could offer him like 1.5 and 1.5, then if he won, he would be the highest paid. So you could have had that. They could have offered him one and then, you know, again, points, or they could be lying about it to begin with. That's entirely possible. The UFC and Dana White in particular spew a bunch of nonsense. So they might have offered him a flat fee that was, you know, one point, instead of 2.5, say it was 
And up, oh, highest paid heavyweight in UFC history. And he's got pay-per-view points. When pay-per-view points at this point mean exponentially less than they did for UFC 200 because of your entire deal structure. So, you, again, like, or so much of what, you know, this deal would have made him, well, what do you mean? Like, and I'm... So, there's a lot of kind of quasi-ambiguity there. To say nothing of the fact that, you know, Brock making 2.5 guaranteed... Like, you could argue he was actually underpaid for that, and all the UFC fighters are underpaid. I don't care whether they're paid at the top or the bottom, they're underpaid. We know they're underpaid. There is no argument. There is no argument unless you're a UFC fighter, apparently. <laughs> yeah, that... That annoy, That just... It's so sad sometimes, man. It's just... It's sad. Um... So... It, yeah, there's there's a lot there. I don't know where Nganu goes next. PFL might make him an offer. PFL is touting their 50-50 rev split. They're trying to get their pay-per-view brand up and running. They have Jake Paul, who's a pretty decent name. Yeah, let me let me just throw this out there. If if the if the PFL's first pay-per-view features both Francis Ngannou, the best heavyweight in the world, and Jake and um, Jake Paul and Nate Diaz. Now, J- obviously, Jake Paul wouldn't fight Nate Diaz, but if you have Jake Paul drawing interest of Nate Diaz, like that's a rest. If that doesn't do well, um, like there's no reason that shouldn't do well. But that's a thought. He might try to box. Unfortunately, the heavyweight boxing landscape is a little bit not in his favor at the moment. It looks like we're going to get Alexander Usyk and Tyson Fury. Right? Like, that. that's what is pointing in that direction. Then we've got... It, I think Wilder and Ruiz is being discussed. Uh, you get... Because... Look... Francis against a legitimate top-end heavyweight boxer, he's probably going to lose. Probably. He's not an exceptional boxer, technically. So, but you also, like, don't really want to throw him in against a generic journeyman either, because he wants to be paid. So he would have to, in theory, he would have to be fighting somebody of at least moderate name value. And, again, Ruiz is probably maybe the guy they would want to look at. I don't, I don't know. But he probably, again, I don't know that he beats Ruiz. He probably doesn't beat Ruiz. And again, I don't know. Like, that's the thing about Ruiz. He's been so up and down. I mean, he's obviously succeeded at a high level, but... If you look like performance to performance, he's been very up and down. So, but you, you know, him and Wilder, like, it's a decent freak show fight, I guess. But, I don't know. So, Francis Ngannou is out there testing the waters. We're going to see what happens. Uh, so, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, we also got a couple of fight announcements. 
in addition to Jones and Gone. Uh, UFC 286 got its headliner officially. The third fight between Leon Edwards and Kamaru Usman. Uh, well, main event, that card will be in London. Also on that same card, your presumptive co-main event. Oh, baby. Justin Gaethje and Raphael Faziv. Hook that into my veins. Yes. Um, I imagine they'll have a standby for Edwards and Usman. I mean, if Usman's still kind of nursing an injury, but if it's not bad enough to... So it, again, if it's not... Uh, if, again, there's usually some kind of injury to fighters, so if it's not that bad... But it might get worse, so there's probably somebody they're gonna have on standby for that. But it's a, you know, it's the fight that makes sense. So we'll see what happens. But 286 looking pretty good. Um, anything else got announced over the last little bit? Let me double check. Again, Gaethje and Fiziev just. Um, Stipe Miocic piped up. He who been Stipe had been wanting a, a third fight with Francis, but that never quite materialized. He says he wants the winner of. Jones and Ganu. If they're gonna fight in March, then he wants to fight the winner in. Uh, I think he said June. Um, whatever. And I don't mean that to be dismissive of Stipe. Stipe's obviously a very he's maybe the best heavyweight in UFC history. Certainly one of them. Uh, the most accomplished. If we're talking about like successful heavyweight champion, like it's him. He's kind of the guy there, numerically. I just... Uh, that's, that's a long way to go between now and then, and there's way too much. Especially given some of the... Given all parties. Like, I'm not... like That's way too much. I mean, if Stipe fights again, I'm, I'm happy to watch the guy fight. I like his fights. So, again, do we have anything? That got... Announced. No, that was already there. Again, 285. Got its presumptive main event. What else is on that card? Uh, Derek Brunson and Drakus Duplessis. That's not a bad fight. Um, Julian Marcus and Mark Andre Barrio. That'll be um, that'll be the Simpson men, putting pots on their heads and then running into each other. But it'll be fun. Cody Garbrandt desperately trying to revive his career. Um, Bo Nichols, UFC debut. Shit in that. Oh, Jeff Neal and Shavkat Rachmanov was rebooked for that. Yeah. Give me that one, baby. That's a good fight. So, 285 shaping up pretty nicely, actually. Um, I believe... No, that fight we don't know yet, because Anthony Smith was supposed to fight Jamal Hill, but that obviously isn't happening, so they're trying to figure something out for that. Uh, yeah. That's not great. Then how about this one? So at the moment, our announced stuff is ending at like kind of the end of March. So we'll be expecting probably in February at some point, they'll start announcing all the stuff after that. Because, I mean, UFC 287 doesn't even really have a card or a venue or anything. We have a couple of fights in theory. We have Rob Font and Adrian Yanez. Um, good fight. Then Cynthia Calvillo and Lupita Godinez. I don't care. Um, Font and Yanez. Um, it's a good fight. It's a real good fight, actually. But point being, that's all still kind of, you know, getting settled. So we don't know anything much past the first week of April. 
We will just uh, have to wait and see for the next set of announcements, but that's where things are at the moment. Okay, I think that's everything I had written down. Let me check Twitter, see if anything crazy has happened. If not, we will do plugs and get out of here. Okay, you know what? Hang on. Last thing about Francis Ngannou. How the UFC did not... How they failed to turn that man into a big star. Like, if the UFC was any good at promoting... If you don't know Francis Ngannou's life story, it is nuts. Like, it's movie stuff. I'm not saying that lightly. I genuinely mean that. It's movie stuff. Um, I don't want to... I'm not going to get into the details here. It'd be here forever. Um, pretty good summation can be found. There's three videos... Who was three? On Mixed Molly Whoppery, the YouTube channel. Uh, he's got a three set of videos on Francis Ngannou. The detail in his life. Um, that man's story should be a much bigger deal than it is. And the UFC just... Eh, they don't promote very well, believe it or not. Um, they don't promote fighters very well. So, yeah. Uh, just... Wanted to mention that one again. Last thing about Ngannou there. Um, I think... Sorry, looking at Twitter. I think that's everything. Hang on. One last check. Alright, nope. Nothing new. So... Let's get into plugs, shall we? Uh, there will be a Damn You Hollywood on Tuesday at an earlier time. Uh, we will be 2 p.m. Eastern for the Gerard Butler and... Uh, Mike Coulter movie Plane, which I'm very much looking forward to. You know, can we just get some of those like self-contained 90s-style action movies back in vogue, please? Please. So Mark and I will be reviewing that. Should be a good time. Uh, yeah. Last week was the Damn You Hollywood for Megan, which I was incredibly meh on. Um, I don't know. People are, this is one of those that I'm just like, all right, I am, I don't understand it, but people are enjoying it. So Godspeed party on. Uh, I, I did not enjoy that movie. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, you can listen to our full review again over on Damn You Hollywood. It's from my other stuff. I cover professional wrestling and mixed martial arts for 4-in-1 Mania. Let's see, last week I was AEW's Dark Elevation. I subbed in for Dynamite um, last Wednesday. My apologies, the MLW review was late getting out. I had a lot of crap to do in my personal life, and something had to get pushed back. So It wound up being that. My apologies should be on time this week, and then WWE SmackDown on Friday. So this week, same thing more or less, AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday. MLW on Thursday, WWE SmackDown on Friday, and the UFC event on Saturday. Uh, again, with the earlier, damn you, Hollywood. So, be on the lookout for any and all of that, if it, any of it interests you. I thank you all very much for needing all of the support that is lent my direction. It means the world to me. So, that's it for the second episode of 2023. Thank you all again very much for listening. We will be back here next week to review UFC 283, hopefully with a new UFC heavyweight champion, and just that. There is no event on the 28th. There will, however, be an event on February 4th, very early in the morning. For those of you who may not remember this, 
Um, UFC on ESPN plus 76. Again, this is happening February 4th. This was supposed to take place in Seoul, South Korea. It was. It features a bunch of the finals for the um, like the Road to the UFC thing they were doing. I don't even remember where that was airing. That might have been on Fight Pass. Uh, it's not an especially good card. No, it, it's really not a very good card. Jeez. Um, Duho. No, it's not even Duho Choi. No, that is Duho Choi. That's Korean Superboy. Well, he's been out for a while. The last fight. His last fight was the loss to Charles Jordan in um, 19. He's been out for a while. But Duho Choi didn't have bad fights. You know, the Korean Superboy is kind of awesome. So he's back. Um, anyway, the, the point is that was supposed to take place in South Korea. So the time slots were all for a live event in South Korea. The main card starts at um, is it 1 a.m. Eastern Time? I believe is the main card. Would that technically be Friday night? I'll have to double check that. Um, either way, we'll not be previewing that next week. We'll be previewing that the week after, but next week, review of UFC 283, and of course, any and all of the news that continues to pop up. It's what we do here. All right. Thank you all again. Appreciate you. Stay safe out there as always and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.